0: this is the final episode in what has been a four-part series on the role of rebellion in the final abolition of slavery throughout we have explored a series of different events and characters who showed rebellion and resistance in the face of establishment slavery and slave trading in the 1800s in the first episode which was about the spanish slave ship trial we tried to explore what the experience of being enslaved Might have been like, as well as looking at an actual slave mutiny that took place aboard that ship in 1810. We saw the slaves take over the ship and concoct a ruse so as to deceive the white American captain, Amasa Delano, who had come across them at sea. That black people could be organized and intelligent enough to come up with and execute such a plan contradicted Delano's and most of white society's ideas of what Africans were capable of. This contradiction was explored by Herman Melville in his novel, Benito Sereno. In the second episode of our series, we went on the Underground Railroad, Rail Road, with real people whose escapes from slavery brought them into the realm of what became an organic, semi-organized, and cell-like resistance movement dedicated to helping slaves flee. This was an example of Multiracial rebellion at a grassroots level. As slaves fled north, others, both white and black, and from varying social backgrounds, defied the law, with great risk to help them. Many of those escaped slaves then became themselves vital cogs in the machinery of the railroad, as conductors, or sometimes stationmasters, all the way to Canada. Activities as subversive as those exhibited by members of the Underground Railroad were as illegal as those of a group of teenagers hacking into government computer systems would be today. In response to the Underground Railroad, in the final half century of establishment slavery, countless slaves were chased, hunted, caught, tortured, and killed, or made to disappear into the Deep South as a result of the nation's laws being upheld by law-abiding citizens. Many of those who helped them found themselves also in prison, also in accordance with the law. Many were harassed, beaten, or even lynched by mobs. The constitution begins with, we the people. Yet, here was a concerted, widespread, and organized effort by some of those very people to defy it. By the 1830s, the USA was torn by the contradiction with which it had been born, founded by men who possessed the most enlightened values of freedom on earth, but who also possessed slaves. The nation was growing and adding states. We saw in episode 3 how the divisions within what was already a very diverse national society reached all levels of its people and institutions. Political battles in Washington descended into physical ones. Not only were politicians doing to each other that, which most people probably wish they could do to politicians, beating each other senseless in Congress, but bloodshed was now also erupting amongst pro- and anti-slavery settlers in the newer states, such as Kansas. In all these stories, we find what is a general thread for this series, as well as for the period of time in which they are set largely the first half of the 19th century. This was an age of contradiction. enlightenment fueled ideas of liberty had taken root all over the shop. The consequent revolutions that stemmed from them saw the creation of new, independent republics like the USA and Haiti. Haiti was a free state founded by slaves. There are so many complexities to the Haitian Revolution, and we've deliberately stayed away from it during this series. But the USA that was a free state founded by slaveholders. There are few greater contradictions than that of a free state whose economy and society is upheld by slavery. And so, as we've reached the last years of the 1850s, this was all bound to come to a head. Events were becoming extreme, and we all know that they are heading towards the horrible extremities of the Civil War. But first, one of the most extreme and It is arguable, odd characters of the time, a man named John Brown, is going to take action that will usher in the final conflict to end establishment slavery. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is the fourth and final episode in our series, Abolishing the Norm. It's called Over John Brown's Body. This episode is brought to you by Nonchalance. So what if you haven't liked our Facebook page, followed us on Twitter, or donated to us on Patreon? Pfft, whatever. Wish they would. <laughs> From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing. Until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face, and say, Stuff you and stuff what you tell me. It is the autumn of 1859. Two men stand across from each other in an old stone quarry near Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, looking eye to eye. They had been friends for over 10 years and cared deeply for and highly respected each other. In terms of the social context that prevailed in Antebellum, USA, they made an odd couple. The younger of the two, by nearly 20 years, had been born into slavery, escaped and then earned a reputation in the North as an elite orator. He was a renowned and ardent abolitionist who travelled around sharing his effusive condemnation of slavery. His name was Frederick Douglass. The other man, just shy of 60 years old, was John Brown, the stern, Calvinist, Old Testament-style, Bible-thumping, anti-slavery freedom fighter who we met in the previous episode when during the course of 1855, he had violently raised the stakes in the bleeding of Kansas. Brown had sent for Frederick Douglass to come and meet him in the quarry about three weeks prior. Brown was going to try and convince Douglass to play an important role in a plan which Brown had been constructing, amending, and putting together for a long time. John Brown had decided that abolition must come at any cost, and that southern slaves must be given a signal that they had the support to be able to rise up against their owners. To achieve this, John Brown had now decided he was going to attack the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. It would be the lighting of a beacon to signal that the time for slavery's demise had arrived. But who the hell was John Brown? Well, he'd been born in 1800 in Connecticut to a tanner called Owen Brown, and his wife, Ruth. They were staunch Calvinists who ingrained in their son the notions of their reserved piety and religion. Being fundamentally against slavery was one of these. As a youngster, he took on his father's trade, eventually running his own tanning business. He was married at 20, and soon his wife, Dianthe, bore a son, John Brown Jr. The family moved around a bit as Brown plied his trade but he was never really very successful as a businessman or manager. In fact, he was actually pretty bad at it. They had seven children in total, but several did not survive far past infancy. And soon after one child had died at birth in 1832, his wife also succumbed to the always potential awfulness of being a mother in the 19th century, and she died following a traumatic childbirth. Brown remarried a year later, this time to a 16-year-old woman called Mary Ann Day, and they would have another 13 children. Of his 20 offspring by his two wives, only 11 would survive to adulthood. Just as his parents had done unto him, he instilled in his children his values, his principles, work ethic, and of course, his strict religious beliefs. This is well demonstrated by a story his eldest son, John Brown Jr., later told in life. He had been employed at his father's tannery as an apprentice for three years and was given the task of grinding bark, which he would do by leading a blind horse around and around in a circle. As you can imagine, this was not the most stimulating of work, especially for a boy of only around 10 years old, so he would often slack off. Frustrated by his lazy son, John Brown devised a way to motivate him into working harder. He created a ledger on which he would tally debits that when compounded would be paid off in the forms of lashes for bad behaviour, such as lying, disobeying his mother, or not working hard enough. He would also get credits for doing things well. But needless to say, he was about as good as his father would be at racking up debts, and eventually he reached a point where the total had to be paid. 25 lashes. After going through the book with his son and showing him all that he had done wrong, Brown proceeded to whip John Jr. with a blue beach switch, eight times. But then, then he stopped, and the father took off his shirt, handed the son the whip, and told him to take out the rest of the punishment on him. The boy was understandably hesitant, but his father commanded him to Hit harder and harder until he had balanced the account. Blood seeped down John Brown's back. Writing as an adult, John Jr. said that this was, quote, my first practical illustration of the doctrine of the atonement. I was then too obtuse to perceive how justice could be satisfied by inflicting penalty upon the back of the innocent instead of the guilty, but at that time, I had not read the ponderous volumes of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, which Father owned. End quote. This would not be the last time that John Brown would punish the innocent to atone for the sins of the guilty. He was pious, righteous, fairly cantankerous, and could be very dismissive of people, and so often did not build great relationships with them, except for where his passion for abolition was met. He was obviously a capable man, and would create a reputation for quality in more than one industry. In his adult years, he found several partners to back him at various junctures, but unfortunately for he and his family, most of his business ventures failed. He had been able to pay for his son's debt with his own back, but he could never quite pay his own. In terms of abolitionist activism, John Brown was consistently engaged on the Underground Railroad. Working as a conductor along with his sons, and as a station master too, Brown would often tell his children the story of the first fugitive slave who he harboured in his cabin. Brown had offered him refuge, but upon hearing voices and hoarse hooves approaching, the slave boy jumped out the window and hid in the woods outside the cabin. After it became apparent that the sound was just his neighbours returning, and not slave catchers, Brown went out to look for the boy and was apparently able to find him by hearing the pounding of his heart. As he said, quote, I heard the boy's heart thumping before I reached him, and I vowed eternal enmity to slavery, end quote. Like a 19th century Superman, literally. White guests of Brown, even people who were abolitionists themselves, were often shocked when runaway slaves and free blacks sat equally at his dinner table. And were referred to formally and with respect, such as Mrs. and Mr. Many abolitionists at the time were, by today's standards, still abhorrently racist. Brown was not one of these, but rather a go-hard-or-go-home kind of guy, no half-measures. He sought equality regardless of race. A story told by his daughter Ruth recounts how, in 1836, Brown and his family went to the Franklin Congregational Church one Sunday when they saw a black woman who worked for him sitting in the back, near the door, where she was unable to even see the preacher. This raised his indignation, so the next week he invited the woman and her husband to the church again, and in front of the whole congregation, sat them in his family seats near the front. The minister was angry, and the rest of the congregation was shocked at this disregard of the social norms. Disgusted, the Brown family left the church, and never belonged to another one. Historian Evan Carton, who wrote the excellent book Patriotic Treason, which we've used as an invaluable resource and that does amazing justice to the story of John Brown and his family, went as far as to say that, quote, No white family before the Civil War ever lived in such communion and solidarity with African Americans at work, at worship, at meals, at war, as did the Browns. None would pay a higher price, or pay it more willingly for their commitment to black people's freedom. Quote. Slavery and racism were, without condition, as barbaric to John Brown, living at a time when they were fairly established norms, as they are to us, 150 years later. In 1837, Brown was radicalized towards militancy, when a fervent abolitionist called Elijah Parrish Lovejoy was murdered by a pro-slavery mob in Alton, Illinois. Lovejoy was a Presbyterian minister who had, until recently, been living in St. Louis, Missouri, a slave state, running an abolitionist newspaper called Observer. He had provoked and incurred a lot of wrath from pro-slavery forces, for instance, His printing press was sought out and destroyed, and his wife was harassed, so he had decided to move his family to Alton, a neighboring town only several miles away, but in the free state of Illinois. Lovejoy had already lost three printing presses to mob violence. He and his supporters were intent on protecting a new one, which had arrived by steamboat in the very early hours of November 7th, 1837. They whisked it away to a warehouse in Alton and took it to the third floor. There, Lovejoy and about 20 others stood guard over it. If they had been seen, the people who had destroyed his previous presses would surely do the same to this one. Unfortunately for them, they were seen. As the morning turned into day and throughout the hours that followed, word of the press's arrival spread through town. As darkness fell, a mob began to gather ready to march on the warehouse and take the press by force. Lovejoy and his supporters refused the mob entry, of course, and shot at them from the upper floor window. The mob produced a ladder, which they propped up against the wall. A young boy was given a torch, and the task of running up the ladder to set the building alight. Lovejoy and one of his men, however, made a surprise counterattack outside the warehouse. Taking the attackers by surprise, they pushed the ladder down. Again, it was propped up, and again Lovejoy made a run to try and push it over, but this time, he did not return. He was shot five times, and died on the spot. So what does this have to do with John Brown? Well, Lovejoy's death was seen and projected by abolitionist forces as a martyrdom for the cause. In Hudson, where Brown was at the time, a memorial prayer meeting was arranged, which both Brown and his father, Owen, attended. There, one university lecturer declared, quote, "The crisis has come. The question before the American citizens is no longer alone: Can the slaves be made free, but are we free, or are we slaves under Southern mob law? End quote? At one stage, Owen Brown rose to give prayer. Two women who knew John Brown well and were nearby him during the memorial, Later gave account of how following his father's devotion he rose to his feet rose his right hand in oath and said quote, "I pledge myself with God's help that I will devote my life to increasing hostility to slavery." End quote. Another account which to be honest is our favorite reckons he said quote, "here before God in the presence of these witnesses I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery end quote. that one more. From then on, Brown was engaged in a war against the appalling institution that would go far beyond underground railroad operations and buying abolitionist newspapers. But being a good family man, he was not content with this just being a personal war against slavery. No, his whole family would have to take part. John Brown Jr, his eldest son, recalled that, One night around this time, when he was about 19 years old, Father, Mother, Jason, Owen, and I were late in the evening seated around the fire in the open fireplace of the kitchen, in the old Haymaker house, where we then lived. And there, he first informed us of his determination to make war on slavery by force and arms. He said that, He had long entertained such a purpose that he believed it his duty to devote his life, if need be, to this object, which he made us fully to understand. After spending considerable time in setting forth in most impressive language the hopeless conditions of the slave, he asked who of us were willing to make common cause with him in doing all in our power to break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the spoil out of his teeth, naming each of us in succession. Are you Mary, John, Jason, Owen? Receiving an affirmative answer from each, he kneeled in prayer, and all did the same. This posture in prayer impressed me greatly, as it was the first time I had ever known him to assume it. After prayer, he asked us to raise our right hands, and he then administered to us an oath, the exact terms of which I cannot recall, but in substance, it bound us to secrecy and devotion to the purpose of fighting slavery by force and arms to the extent of our ability. End quote. The next years were extremely tough for Brown and his wife and nine children. His businesses, including tanning and real estate development, failed and he was bankrupt by the end of 1842. They lost their land in Hudson and had to move into a tiny wooden cabin in a town called Richfield. Not long after, their five year old son was struck down and succumbed to dysentery. The misery would not stop there, however, as more of their children fell ill. In a three week period, John and Mary Brown buried four of them. John Brown dealt with his sorrow in his staunch Calvinist kind of way. He wrote to his son telling him of his sibling's demise Quote, In our sore affliction, there is still some comfort. Sarah, And here he's speaking of the elder daughter who died. Like your mother, during her sickness discovered great composure of mind and patience, together with strong assurance of meeting God in paradise. We fondly hope that she is not disappointed. They were all children, towards whom perhaps we might have felt a little partial, but they all now lie in a little row together. End quote. One of the jobs that Brown had done at various stages was driving cattle and sheep over land. He reckoned that he had a natural longing to become a shepherd, and so now, bankrupt and bereaved, he did just that. He proved himself amazing at dealing with sheep. His sheep won prizes for their outstanding qualities in sheepishness, and his credentials within only three years after being bankrupt had become those of an expert in all things of an ovine nature. He went into partnership with a sheep owner and went about producing wool of extremely high quality. Leaving his wife with their remaining children, but taking two of his elder sons with him, he moved to Springfield, Massachusetts in June 1846 to run sheep operations. During this period, Brown also began serious long-term planning for his assault on slavery. He began to develop a strategy that would be to show slaves in the South that they had support and to entice them to flee and fight. He wanted to build a sustained armed resistance on the border between North and South that would be big enough and troublesome enough to force the end of slavery. During this period, away from home, his wife and he, in absentia, continued to suffer devastating losses of children. One toddler, daughter Amelia, accidentally had a pot of boiling water tipped on her by another sister, scolding her terribly. She did not recover. Despite this, Brown stayed in Springfield, managing wool deals and plotting a slave rebellion. He wrote home that he was, quote, utterly unable to give any expression of my feelings on hearing of the dreadful news. End quote. He could not return home, however, but he urged that Ruth, the elder sister who had tipped the pot, not have undue blame cast upon her, and that the event was a trial put there by God through which the family must suffer. Eventually, Considering business was going okay, and that he did miss his family terribly, he found a new house, and sent for them to join him and the eldest boys. In 1848, he went to hear a man give a lecture on the abomination that was slavery, and on the rights to freedom of every slave. The two men already knew of each other. Frederick Douglass had become a part of Brown's plans for abolition. He needed highly respected, known black figures to make it work. By this time, Frederick Douglass was already one of the most renowned, and he would only become even more famous as the years went on. Douglass, though, had heard of Brown, too. He was friends with two escaped slaves called Logan and Garnet, and they were keen that the escaped slave come orator would meet the tanner come shepherd Douglass would later recount, quote, In speaking of him, Their voices would drop to a whisper, and what they said of him made me very eager to see and to know him. End quote. The two met after that lecture, and obviously connected. On his next visit to Springfield later that year, Brown invited Douglas to dinner, which he accepted. Brown's family was accustomed to having African Americans, from slaves to free people, at their dinner table. Much, much later, in the 1880s, Douglas would speak of the occasion, quote, they were evidently used to it, and had no thought of any impropriety or degradation in being their own servants." End quote. As usual, the whole family contributed to discussions on society and politics, with a focus on the abolition of slavery of course. Although there was lively banter, of Brown that night, Douglas said that quote, "...his arguments, which I ventured at some points to oppose, seemed to convince all." his appeals touched all and his will impressed all certainly i never felt myself in the presence of a stronger religious influence than while in this man's house end quote it's a pretty big goal once the rest of the family had cleared and left the table brown was alone with douglas and so could confide in him quote he said to me at this meeting that he had invited me to his house for the especial purpose of laying before me his plan for the speedy emancipation of my race. He seemed to apprehend opposition on my part as he opened the subject and touched my vanity by saying that he had observed my course at home and abroad and wanted my cooperation. He said he had been for the last thirty years looking for coloured men to whom he could safely reveal his secret and had almost despaired at times of finding such. But then now he was encouraged, for he saw heads rising up in all directions to whom he thought he could with safety impart his plan. As his plan then lay in his mind, it was very simple and had much to commend it. It did not, as was supposed by many, contemplate a general rising among the slaves and a general slaughter of the slave masters, an insurrection he thought would only defeat the object. But it did contemplate the creating of an armed force which should act in the very heart of the South. He was not averse to the shedding of blood and thought the practice of carrying arms would be a good one for the coloured people to adopt, as it would give them a sense of manhood. No people, he said, could have self-respect or be respected who would not fight for their freedom. He called my attention to a large map of the United States and pointed out to me the far-reaching Alleghenies, Stretching away from the borders of New York into the southern states. These mountains, he said, are the basis of my plan. God has given the strength of these hills to freedom. They were placed here to aid the emancipation of your race. I know these mountains well, and could take a body of men into them and keep them there in spite of all the efforts of Virginia to dislodge me and drive me out. End quote. Douglas said that he gave every argument against Brown's plan but was clearly enamoured by this man's passion and belief. Douglas was not against violence for the cause, but it must have been amazing for him to come to know that this random, pious, white farmer and failed businessman was so committed, had thought so much on the subject, and was as determined as any other in the cause of the slave. Douglas said that John Brown told him that, quote, Slavery was a state of war. To which the slaves were unwilling parties and consequently they had a right to anything necessary to their peace and freedom. He would shed no blood and would avoid a fight except in self-defense, when he would, of course, do his best. He believed this movement would weaken slavery in two ways, first by making slave property insecure, it would become undesirable, and secondly, it would keep the anti-slavery agitation alive, and public attention fixed upon it, and thus lead to the adoption of measures to abolish the evil altogether." Quote. Douglas, in becoming a sought-after orator for abolitionist events, often noted with ire how he was presented by wealthy white abolitionists to other wealthy white abolitionists from whom they were asking for financial support. He was told to speak like a slave, rather than in the beautiful and loquacious manner of which he was more than capable. When he left John Brown's house after his visit, he would have been in no doubt that he'd just met the most remarkable and unique abolitionist going around. Although he was one kick-ass shepherd and pretty innovative in business, Brown's wool venture also struggled. Being a small independent wool producer was a tough gig in antebellum U.S., especially at any distance from the major wool manufacturers in the north. Prices were set low, and small producers had little option but to agree to them. Brown devised a collective bargaining system endeavour, which many of these producers joined to try to raise all of their prices. To encourage the big millers to buy at higher prices, he also developed a proper grading system for wool, which would ensure that they would be getting the quality they paid for. The millers hated all of this, And they hated Brown. They could not, as they saw it, have the wool pulled over their eyes. (laughs) Sorry. So, the venture never really caught on. Get it? Caught on? In retribution, the millers took the strategy of paying competitors at higher prices than what the collective bargainers were asking, betting that they could do this for longer than the collective bargainers could sustain themselves with no sales. There were also a bunch of other factors, and it's all really interesting stuff, but much to your lament, I'm sure, this is not a podcast on 19th century wool economics, so let's not get too far into it. Also, I can't think of any more wool puns, and you'd think they'd be kind of fle- flea-fleezy. <laughs> oh, go on. You do better. <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm really ramming them home a bit much. <laughs> anyway. Get on with it. Suffice it to say that although Brown and his team managed to sustain the operation for four years, they would be forced to shut up shop by the end of 1850. Also in 1850, as part of the 1850 Compromise, the Fugitive Slave Act was introduced. This essentially, by legal obligation, made every free citizen into a potential slave catcher. We covered the cause and effect of this act in episode 2, and how it greatly reflected the division of the societies in the US at the time. John Brown, now back in New York, defeated from his failed wool ventures, with his reputation and financial security shot, actually took heart and motivation from the implementation of this awful act. He believed that the Fugitive Slave Act was so against the will of the general population that eventually both free people and slaves would rise up to amend it. Towards the end of the year, back in Springfield to wrap things up, he attended the Thanksgiving service at the Free Church. After being invited to speak in church, he told the congregation bluntly, quote, trust in God and keep your powder dry. The African American population of Springfield was like free blacks and escaped slaves everywhere, now terrified for their security and freedom which were at risk under the Fugitive Slave Act. Brown set about creating an anti-slavery militia, a vigilance defense force, that would protect people from being taken by slave catchers. He called it the United States League of Gileadites, Let it be the fruit, under his eye, and was intent on creating chapters around the country. In 1851, Brown went once more into being a simple shepherd in Akron, Ohio, and set about trying to pay off his debts and earn enough money to get his family's living standards up to a respectable level once more. But life in the 19th century was cruel. Tragically, when Mary gave birth to the couple's 12th child, the area around Akron was struck by a case of the whooping cough, which afflicted the entire family. At just three weeks old, the infant was the only one not to survive. Brown had now, between two marriages, lost eight children. He did not take any of the deaths of his children lightly, being stoic but internally grief-stricken by all of them. However, for this unnamed child, he did not even give any ceremony or proper and protected gravesite. It is said that afterwards, he drove oxen over the earth where he had silently and angrily laid the infant to rest. By now, Brown's four eldest sons, John Jr., Jason, Owen, and Frederick, were grown men The eldest two had families and farms of their own. They had largely stayed by their father's side when and where requested, in the wool business and abolitionist matters. By 1854, as their father continued working off his debt and then to save enough money to move his family back to New York State, John Jr. proposed an idea to his brothers. None were having much luck with their own ventures in farming and business and so were open to new opportunities. When Kansas Territory was open for settlement and put on the road to statehood, the brothers decided to go. Their younger half-brother, Salmon, kind of like the Fish, or champion Australian footballer Paul Salmon, decided to join them. So this is how the Brown family became involved in what would descend into the chaos that was bleeding Kansas. If you have randomly jumped into this series halfway, or even three quarters of the way, We highly encourage you to listen to episode three, No Place Like Home, to hear all about this. John Brown Sr. was extremely keen to get back to New York, to put his failed ventures behind him and to concentrate on the trifling matters of his family and ending the millennia-old institution of slavery. His sons asked him to join them in Kansas, arguing that the land would be better, cheaper, and that it was for the cause of halting slavery's expansion. Whether Kansas would be a slave state or not would depend on how many settlers from each now ideologically defined region came to vote on the matter. But Brown's mind was not set on voting out slavery, but rather on destroying it completely. He wanted to set up more defense forces and to go and set up a guerrilla base on the north-south border. He declined his son's offer, but not without giving it some serious consideration. He wrote to his peers, including Douglas, for advice. What the Brown brothers and their families found in their resettlement to Kansas was hardship, illness, death of children, and harassment from pro-slavery forces. Desperately, John Brown Jr. wrote to his father, I tell you the truth when I say that while the interests of despotism has secured to its cause hundreds and thousands of the meanest and most desperate of men, armed to the teeth, with revolvers, bowie knives, rifles, and cannon, while they are not only thoroughly organized, but under pay from slaveholders, the Friends of Freedom are not one-fourth of them half-armed, and as to military organization among them, it nowhere exists in this territory. End quote. Please, Father, he was saying, come and bring us some guns. John Brown responded to this letter by once more leaving his poor wife Mary behind. After just having relocated her and their remaining children once more, he sorted out his various affairs and went about raising funds to build a militant free state force in Kansas. Once he was able to, he packed a wagon full of guns and other weapons and made his way there. Evan Carton wrote of Brown's wife, Mary, at this time that she, quote, had long known that when it was time for her husband to do his duty for the slaves, she must be ready to let him go. And she was. She had been letting him go throughout the 22 years of their marriage, often joining him later in the places he had gone first without her. She had moved with him 11 times, and lived without him for months on end. But these were not the experiences that prepared her to bow her head in assent and say only, God bless you there, and keep you well, when Brown showed her the letter from Kansas and said he would leave within the week. Mary had always been prepared to let him go. End quote. But a tough woman was Mary Brown. Suffice to say that during his time in Kansas, Brown became hardcore militant, responding to violence with violence by murdering pro-slavery men in Potawatomi, by fighting in the Battle of Osawatomie, where he earned himself an infamous reputation and the awesome nickname Osawatomie Brown, and leading a dedicated band of guerrillas, in which his sons played a leading role. After the events of Kansas, Brown had become a notorious figure and federally sought after criminal. He sought refuge in New England at the end of 1856, trying to raise funds for the execution of his plan. If you remember, when we left Brown in Kansas at the end of that episode, he had sworn to bring the war to Africa, his code word for the South. This conviction was only reinforced in March of 1857 when the US Supreme Court handed down the most terrible decision it has ever made in a case known as Dred Scott versus Sanford. Dred Scott was a slave who had been brought by his master into a free state, which he argued entitled him to emancipation. The Supreme Court, however, disagreed, and in their decision said that black people, quote, had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior, that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro must justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. End quote. Abolitionists reacted with outrage over the decision, and it was in this climate that John Brown single-mindedly began to put into action this master plan that he had laid before Frederick Douglass years before, to go and establish a guerrilla movement fighting slavery in the mountains of Virginia. After spending some time in New England, meeting with fellow abolitionists and attempting to raise funds for his plan, Brown went to New York, and he stayed for a while with Frederick Douglass. Brown realized that U.S. society was so deeply divided that, upon the eventual demise of slavery, it would need rebuilding. He saw that the contradiction of the U.S., the land of the free with a dependence on slavery, must be solved, and that the original constitution on which it was based was fundamentally flawed and should be rewritten. Douglas said of his guest, After the close of his Kansas work, Captain Brown came to my house in Rochester, and he said he desired to stop with me several weeks. But, he added, I will not stay unless you will allow me to pay board. Knowing that he was no trifler and meant all he said, and desirous of retaining him under my roof, I charged $3 a week. While here, he spent most of his time in correspondence. He wrote often to George L. Stearns of Boston, Gerrit Smith of Peterborough, New York, and many others, and received many letters in return. When he was not writing letters, he was writing and revising a constitution which he meant to put in operation by means of the men who should go with him into the mountains. End quote. Yes, that's right. John Brown, while staying with Frederick Douglass, took it upon himself to become a new founding father and just whipped up a constitution for the United States of America himself. Isn't that odd? It's odd. It's weird. It's weird. As you would expect, it was a constitution that, unlike the legitimate one, did not allow for slavery. Quote, Provisional Constitution and Ordinances for the People of the United States. Preamble. Whereas slavery, throughout its entire existence in the United States, is none other than a most barbarous, unprovoked, and unjustifiable war of one portion of its citizens upon another portion, the only conditions of which a perpetual imprisonment and hopeless servitude or absolute extermination, in utter disregard and violation of those eternal and self-evident truths set forth in our Declaration of Independence. Therefore, we, citizens of the United States, and the oppressed people who, by a recent decision of the Supreme Court, are declared to have no rights which the white man is bound to respect, together with all other people degraded by the laws thereof, do, for the time being, ordain and establish for ourselves the following provisional constitution and ordinances, the better to protect our persons, property, lives, and liberties, and to govern our actions." End quote. It's a strong start. Pretty passionate and reasonable. But Brown was about process and quality, not about captivating an audience. He goes on to write 48 different articles, some of them are good, others more questionable. The 40th one really caught our eye. Quote, "Profane swearing, filthy conversation, indecent behavior or indecent exposure of the person or intoxication and quarreling shall not be allowed or tolerated, neither unlawful intercourse of the sexes." End quote. Whilst of course we are totally against unlawful intercourse of the sexes, Profane swearing and a little bit of indecent exposure and filthy conversation are kind of our thing. So I'm going to take my pants off and say, thank fuck this constitution was never actually put into effect. Frederick Douglass support. I'm going to put my pants on now again. (laughs) Frederick Douglass supported Brown wholeheartedly. However, so intense was Brown on this subject that it was not support without a little bit of irony. Quote, his whole time and thought were given to this subject. It was the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. Till I confess, it began to be something of a bore to me. End quote. It is worth mentioning the kind of people who called in on Brown during his time in New England and at Douglas's house. Included were notable figures such as Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Throughout the years of activism, underground railroad involvement and networking, Brown had established the varying support of people with money who, when he could persuade them, gave some of it to him. He was able to secure backing from six wealthy men for the action he was about to take. They would, after this was all over, become known as the Secret Six. Although they never knew the details, the exact details of what he was planning to do, this would actually be a bit of a recurring theme by the way because nobody except for John Brown ever seemed sure about what John Brown was about to do, but with their money and support, he was able to secure a lot of weapons. In May 1858, Brown travelled to Canada to hold a constitutional convention in Chatham, Ontario. Chatham had been an end terminal on the Underground Railroad, with nearly a third of the town's population consisting of escaped slaves or free blacks. On his way to Chatham, he spent some time in St. Catharines, just over the border from Buffalo. And spent several days with a woman who he called quote the most of a man naturally that i ever met end quote no not caitlin jenner he was in fact talking about harriet tubman brown wanted to recruit tubman to his plan given her unmatched knowledge of roots and hiding spots and ways to sneak into and out of the south tubman supported brown's plan and it has been said that she agreed to join him at the very least She suggested that he do it on the 4th of July, a date that he had also considered appropriate. At the convention in Chatham, the Constitution was supported by the vast majority of delegates who attended. Unfortunately for Brown, however, most of what he received was just a bunch of signatures. Very few people were willing to go and fight with him. He did already have some recruits, men who had followed him out of Kansas, who were at that time actually stationed and training already in Iowa, but they would be joined ultimately by only eight more. To train his men, Brown had hired a mercenary called Henry Forbes and raised money to pay him to write a manual and help to construct upon the plan. Forbes had taken the money and, although he'd written the manual, had come into conflict with Brown and eventually decided to betray the plan to authorities. Word got to Brown that the authorities were onto him and so he delayed doing anything until the next year, which made Forbes look like an idiot. During that year, he kept just wandering around all over the place, as also seemed to be the way with John Brown. He returned to Kansas, where he and a task force rescued 11 slaves and, over an arduous journey that took them across five states, got them all safely to Canada. Pretty hardcore was John Brown. Anyway, the point is that by 1859, He had raised enough money, was certain enough in himself, and had avoided authorities for long enough to finally go about waging his war on slavery. Just one more thing had to be done. He had to convince Frederick Douglass to join him, and to be the beacon to which slaves in the South would flock, grabbing their emancipation by whatever means they must. He wrote to his friend, and he requested that they meet. And that is how we come back to the scene with which we began this episode. These two men, facing each other in an old stone quarry. Douglas described their meeting thus, As I came near, he regarded me rather suspiciously, but soon recognised me, and received me cordially. He had in his hand when I met him a fishing tackle, with which he had apparently been fishing in a stream hard by. But I saw no fish, and did not suppose that he cared much for his fisherman's luck. The fishing was simply a disguise and was certainly a good one. He looked every way like a man of the neighbourhood, and as much at home as any of the farmers around there. His hat was old and storm-beaten, and his clothing was about the colour of the stone quarry itself, his then-present dwelling place. His face wore an anxious expression, and he was much worn by thought and exposure. I felt that I was on a dangerous mission, and was as little desirous of discovery as himself though no reward had been offered for me. End quote. There were two other men there. One was Brown's secretary, and another an escaped slave who Brown had met at Douglas's house whilst writing his constitution. His name was Shields Green, and Brown had requested that Douglas bring him along. Over two days, the small group sat, only Brown and Douglas talking, the other pair listening silently. Brown, as usual, laid out his case with all the firmness of his unshakable faith and determination behind it. Brown, it seems, had long ago identified Harper's Ferry, one of the main federal armories in Virginia, as the beginning location of his revolution. He would take it, hold it, and then send the word out to slaves all around that the moment had come for them to release themselves, via the armory if they must. Of Douglas's role, Brown told him, quote, When I strike, the bees will begin to swarm and I shall need you to help hive them." End quote. Douglas was not sold on being a beekeeper, or on the plan in general. It was a deviation of the insurrectionist mountain fort strategy which Brown had told him of all those years ago, and about which the two must have spoken many times. Harper's Ferry was too big a target, and the retribution would be too great. Quote, we spent the Saturday and succeeding Sunday in conference on the question whether the desperate step should then be taken or the old plan, as already described, should be carried out. He was for boldly striking Harper's Ferry at once and running the risk of getting into the mountains afterwards. I was for avoiding Harper's Ferry altogether. End quote. Here we see two of the most influential figures in the movement that would eventually take down the last of established human slavery. Two distinctly different men, the lives of each reflecting the contradictions of the age. Douglas had begun life as a slave, on the very lowest level of a social order that said he was property and barely capable of independent thought and action. However, despite these prejudices, he had managed to free himself and earn fame on the merit of his hard work and his talent. This man exceeded all the racistly low expectations of his kind became the most photographed person in the 19th century and committed his life to using his talents for the betterment of his people. But still, despite all of this, he was not willing to commit to this violent attack at the heart of the slave power. Maybe it was because he had been a slave himself, and thus knew from first-hand experience just how violent and extreme the consequences would be for any slave if things didn't turn out as Brown hoped. Perhaps, He saw the viability of a more long-term approach, given the position of renown that he was now finding himself in. He was definitely not against the use of force, and had even conflicted with various of his fellow abolitionists and supporters over it, but maybe he realised the potential of the position in which he'd found himself, and was unwilling to risk it for what he thought was an ill-conceived plan, concocted by the extremely rigid person on the other side of this debate. And that person, of course, was John Brown, this free, white man born into a life that, whilst not luxurious, offered him the opportunities that free people may enjoy, such as education and civil rights. He was also extremely fastidious and dedicated in his work and commitments. He was extremely religious, loved his family and was steadfast in his commitment to his values and on ensuring that they carried on to his children. But despite this, he had spent over 20 years either leading his family all over the place or leaving them for months on end to go and pursue the next step in whatever endeavour he was now into. He had lost so many children when they were just infants or kids, yet had also seen fit to bring his family into his war against slavery that would ultimately see three other of his sons perish in the course of both Bleeding Kansas and what was about to happen in Harper's Ferry. Brown burned with a blazing rage over slavery and its injustice, even though he had never experienced it himself. No matter how single-minded he was, it was not to benefit himself. In the end, however, no matter how much Brown tried, Douglas still did not bite. Quote, It is needless to repeat here what was said, after what has happened. Suffice it that after all I could say, I saw that my old friend had resolved on his course, and that it was idle to parley. I told him finally that it was impossible for me to join him. I could see Harper's Ferry only as a trap of steel, and ourselves in the wrong side of it. He regretted my decision, and we parted." Shields Green, however, the man who Brown had met at Douglas's house and who he had requested to join Douglas to the meeting, made a different decision. Douglas tells us of Shields Green that, quote, He was a fugitive slave from Charleston, South Carolina, and had attested his love of liberty by escaping from slavery and making his way through many dangers to Rochester, where he had lived in my family, and where he met the man with whom he went to the scaffold. I said to him, as I was about to leave, Now, Shields, you have heard our discussion. If in view of it, you do not wish to stay... You have but to say so, and you can go back with me. He answered, I believe I'll go with the old man. Quote. Here's another odd way to look at this scene. Shields Green had just spent two days listening to a debate between one of the greatest and most influential orators of the 19th century, who himself had been a slave and whom you would think would have the most reasons to go and take the fight to the South and a dour old shepherd with a magnificent beard and unshakable belief. After these two days, Shields Green was convinced by the latter, and this says so much about the conviction that Brown can garner in those who followed him for this cause. As we have seen throughout this whole story, this conflict had so divided the societies of the United States that neither politics Compromised protest, nor underground resistance movements like the railroad had been able to solve the great contradiction that was the institution of slavery in the land of the free. What Brown was arguing was that much more must be done, that a lance of abolitionist intent must be speared into the heart of the southern slave power. Nobody else was going to do it. It must be them. Nobody but Brown was fully apprised of the entire plan, But in campaigning for support in Canada and and now with Douglas, he had told different people what he thought they must know. So many had given him moral support. Some, like the Secret Six, had given money. But only a very few had committed themselves to whatever Brown thought must be done. Shields was one of them. In the end, Brown led 18 men to Harper's Ferry on the 16th of October, 1859. It was an absolute strategic failure. At first, Walking along the train tracks into town in the dark early hours, they were spotted by a free black man who queried them, and who they then shot dead. So it was that, to begin this assault on slavery, an act that was consequential to the great contradiction upon which the US was founded, a group consisting mainly of armed white men contradictorily shot a free black man. But just like when he was punishing his children in their youth, or when it Pottawatomie Creek, he took the lives of men whose sin was support of slavery and not necessarily slavery itself, Brown had already shown that sometimes the innocent must pay for the sins of the guilty, in his eyes. He would sacrifice anyone if it brought about slavery's demise. They took the armory and some hostages, which included amongst them the great-grandnephew of George Washington. Brown evidently understood symbolism as he had someone fetch from this descendant of the First President his sword, which was at the man's house. Hold up in the armory with his hostages and men, our dour old shepherd come freedom fighter got to wear the prestigious sword for a while. Also weird. The town's militia and citizens organised quickly to hold the invaders in the armory once they had taken it, and a siege situation entailed. The local Federal troops were mobilised, and soon, Brown and his company were surrounded by U.S. soldiers. To continue the weirdness of this preamble to the upcoming Civil War, these federal U.S. forces were led by one Colonel Robert E. Lee. It's weird. After 30 hours of siege, which included some fighting, much sniping, and a bit of failed negotiating before an ultimately successful surrender, Brown's attack on slavery had come to an end. Ten of his men, including two sons, were dead. Seven remaining alive inside the armory were taken prisoner, including the badly wounded Brown himself. Five of his larger party, who were either positioned around the town or back at their base, managed to flee. In the aftermath of the Harper's Ferry raid, documents and letters were found at the location Brown had been staying before the raid, which implicated the Secret Six and Frederick Douglass in giving Brown money and support. One of the raiders who had been arrested, John Cook, told the authorities that, Frederick Douglass was supposed to have brought a large band of followers to help join in the raid, but Cook supposedly said, quote, The coward did not come, end quote. Understandably fearing arrest and extradition to Virginia, Douglass and three of the Secret Six fled to Canada. Of the other three, one was dying in Rome, one had a mental breakdown and was put into an asylum, and only one, Thomas Higginson, remained obstinately at large. Douglas wrote a letter to the editor of the Democrat newspaper in Rochester, published on October 31st, 1859, vehemently denying ever promising to participate in the Harper's Ferry raid at all. Quote, Mr. Cook may be perfectly right in denouncing me as a coward. I have not one word to say in defense or vindication of my character for courage. I have always been more distinguished for running than fighting, and tried by the Harper's Ferry insurrection test. I am most miserably deficient in courage, even more so than Cook when he deserted his brave old captain and fled to the mountains. To this extent, Mr. Cook is entirely right, and will meet no contradiction from me, or from anybody else. But wholly, grievously, and most unaccountably wrong is Mr. Cook when he asserts that I promised to be present in person at the Harper's Ferry insurrection. Of whatever other imprudence and indiscretion I may have been guilty— I have never made a promise so rash and wild as this. The taking of Harper's Ferry was a measure never encouraged by my word or by my vote. At any time or place, my wisdom or my cowardice has not only kept me from Harper's Ferry, but has equally kept me from making any promise to go there. End quote. Man, he's so good with words. After a hasty trial, Brown was found guilty of murder, conspiracy with slaves to rebel, and treason against the state of Virginia. At the end of the trial, Brown, who was also still recovering from wounds he had suffered during the attack, said, quote, If it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children, and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done, end quote. He approached his death in the same way he approached life. One witness describing his execution said that he behaved with unflinching firmness. He was hung on the 2nd of December, 1859, under heavy guard of federal troops. Brown did not say any word on the gallows, but before he died, he did hand a note to his jailer, which said, quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. End quote. Considering what would erupt in the next two years, this final letter from John Brown is quite prescient indeed. In the Northern Free States, the question of whether Brown deserved to die became a hot one. Basically, like with so many things of this era, there were multiple varied opinions on the raid on Harper's Ferry. For many of the more extreme abolitionists, particularly those who condoned violence, the potential symbolism of Brown's attack and his own impending martyrdom was obvious. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said of Brown's conviction that he would, quote, make the gallows as glorious as the cross, end quote. The fairly new Republican Party that had been founded within the chaotic political division that was the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act and also solely on the cause of stopping the spread of slavery, didn't quite support John Brown the way that they might have. Now that the most extreme abolitionist act ever had been taken, the Republican Party distanced itself from it as much as possible. The new leader of this abolitionist party, Abraham Lincoln, said a month or so after the execution of John Brown, and whilst trying to convince the Southern population that the Republican Party played no part in his attack, quote, John Brown's effort was peculiar. It was not a slave insurrection. It was an attempt by white men to get up a revolt amongst slaves, in which the slaves refused to participate. In fact, it was so absurd that the slaves, with all their ignorance, saw plainly enough it could not succeed." Some of the more prominent anti-slavery activists were the owners of varying newspapers. William Lloyd Garrison, who we mentioned in episode 2 when he published the story of George Washington's escaped slave, only Judge, said of the raid on Harper's Ferry that although the intent behind it was sound, the act itself was, quote, misguided, wild, and apparently insane, end quote. Despite the less than enthusiastic response to Brown's raid in the North in its initial aftermath, When the Civil War began 18 months later, Union troops would sing a marching song with the following lyrics, John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave, his soul's marching on, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul's marching on. The reactions to John Brown in the South were immense and conditional to the soon-to-be outbreak of war a bit more than a year later. The Harpers Ferry scenario was a nightmare to members of the slave societies. A white man had taken up arms against them for the sake of black slaves. They were all aware of what had happened in Haiti decades before, and of other occasions of black insurrection since. This was even worse. Now it was not only the slaves rising up that they must worry about, but also the damned Northern abolitionists, who were evidently not as passive as their reputation in the South, had generally supposed. The case of the traitors was put quickly before state courts, rather than federal. The Governor of Virginia said that this was because if Brown was not tried quickly, then he would surely be lynched by the people, beyond the law's reproach. To illustrate how many in other Southern states saw Harper's Ferry as merely the first of Northern aggression to come, Here's what it says in a letter from the governor of North Carolina immediately afterwards. Quote, The sense of insecurity prevailing among the people of this state renders it necessary that I should apply to you for arms to place in the hands of the militia. I wish to procure from the government 2,000 long-range rifles with bayonets attached for the use of the state of North Carolina. End quote. From this point on, Those in the South who were beginning to rally for secession from the Union were able to stoke the public fear engendered by John Brown's attack enough that they would start supporting the idea of secession themselves. For the South, this Northern incursion was reason enough to break away from the Union, and from the North, the people with whom they now had zero sense of unity, and who it seemed wanted to destroy their way of life by force. Were it not for John Brown and Harper's Ferry, it is arguable that the secessionists would not have so easily stoked these fears. John Brown was as divisive as the issue to which he gave his life. For years afterwards, and even still to this day, people have argued over whether he was insane or righteous, and also about how successful he and his men were. We here at Stuff What You Tell Me might be too naturally biased towards the rebel, so we think that perhaps it is best to give Frederick Douglass a the final say on this question, quote, did John Brown fail? He certainly did fail to get out of Harper's Ferry before being beaten down by United States soldiers. He did fail to save his own life and to lead a liberating army into the mountains of Virginia. But he did not go to Harper's Ferry to save his life. The true question is, did John Brown draw his sword against slavery and thereby lose his life in vain? And to this, I answer 10,000 times no. No man fails or can fail who so grandly gives himself and all that he has to a righteous cause. No man who in his hour of extremist need went on his way to meet an ignominious death could so forget himself as to stop and kiss a little child, one of the hated race for whom he was about to die, could by any possibility fail. Did John Brown fail? Ask Henry A. Wise, in whose house less than two years after a school for the emancipated slaves was taught. Did John Brown fail? Ask James M. Mason, the author of the Inhuman Fugitive Slave Bill, who was cooped up in Fort Warren as a traitor less than two years from the time that he stood over the prostrate body of John Brown. Did John Brown fail? Ask Clement C. Vallandigham one other of the Inquisitorial Party, for he too went down in the tremendous whirlpool created by the powerful hand of this bold invader. If John Brown did not end the war that ended slavery, he did at least begin the war that ended slavery. End quote. And so, dear listeners, it is here that we end this series. In it, we've tried to show that the final decades of institutional slavery, which has a millennia-old institution had now come to be focused within the nascent United States of America was not going to be budged by mere progressive ideals within establishment structures. It became simply too big and too divisive an issue. To some, abolition constituted an existential threat to them and their people. To others, though, slavery was an intolerable stain on the identity of the nation, and it was amongst these. That we get the countless rebels who acted for a cause that today you would find no decent person repudiating. In the end, we know that the conflict was too great to be resolved by anything other than violence of force. But for a long time, individuals tried every other avenue they could, from petitioning to hiding fugitives. As much as the Civil War brought about abolition and emancipation, legitimizing the freedom, if not quite the civil rights of African Americans within the establishment realm, the Civil War was not responsible for the end of slavery. We hope we've convinced you that it was not politicians and generals, but rather the individuals willing to defy, rebel against, and break the laws of their states and their country to whatever extreme necessary, who are the main players in the movement that finally brought about an end to the most awful practice humans have ever engaged in. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave His soul is marching on Glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah His soul is marching on He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord Thank you very much for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me uh, it's been a real uh, pleasure as well as some uh, trials getting through that series. We do have another uh, couple of series in the works we've been working on, and uh, two other projects, two completely separate projects, which we are hoping to be able to release towards the end of the year, if not at the start of next year. So stay tuned for that. Uh, other than that, have a beautiful whatever day it is that you're listening to this, to this on. If it's Saturday, go out there and um, do some fun Saturday stuff. If it's a Monday, don't go and do don't do monday stuff go and do something different go and have fun and uh we'll see you next time on stuff what you tell me stuff what you tell me is a part of the recorded history podcast network it's produced by julian smith and joe Wegasani.